Well, it is good to be with you this morning, and it's good to be back in the book of Revelation. So let me have you turn in your Bibles uh, today to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10, and we're only going to look at 11 verses this morning. So Revelation chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11, and the title of our message uh, this morning is The Bittersweet Commissioning of John. The Bittersweet Commissioning of John. I shared this uh, story with you about five and a half years ago. I hope you don't mind if I share it again. Uh, When I was around eight years of age, my family and I were uh, visiting Amarillo, Texas, where our grandparents lived. And while we were there on this particular visit, my younger brother and I got to exploring through our grandmother's medicine cabinet. And we came upon what looked to us to be a delicious chocolate candy bar that had a tiny piece broken off on one of the corners, and that seemed very odd to us. We had never seen uh, any evidence of anyone ever eating just a tiny piece off the corner of a candy bar and not eat the whole thing. Well, we took the candy bar to our mom and showed her, and immediately she said, you put that right back where you found it. That's not candy. That is medicine for your grandmother. What my mom should have done is she should have grabbed us by the collar and said to us in the sternest of tones, this is a laxative. And if you eat this, it will put your stomach in knots and you will long for death and death will flee from you. But maybe that wouldn't have done any good either because my brother and I did not believe my mom when she said that it was medicine. So long story short, that evening, my brother and I pulled the candy bar back out of the medicine cabinet and broke it in half. My little brother ate all of one half of that chocolate bar, and I ate all of the other half of that chocolate bar, and it was sweet to our taste. We went to bed a little bit later and fell fast asleep. I have no idea how long I was asleep, but I remember waking up with a start, with a terrible pain in my stomach, and I jumped out of bed and made a beeline for the only bathroom in my grandparents' house, only to discover that the bathroom was already occupied by my little brother. I could hear him through the bathroom door crying, and I began crying, and the commotion awakened my mom, who knew exactly what we had done. And let's just say that through the rest of the night, my brother and I were too busy to fall asleep. I share this story simply to say that I know what it is like to eat something that is sweet to my taste, but sits bitter in my stomach. And the Apostle John knows what that experience is like also, and we will see that in our passage today. A big difference, though, is that John is actually commanded by God ultimately to eat this thing that would be sweet on his tongue, but sit bitter in his stomach. And John is going to obey God and eat this as a part of his preparation to prophesy the rest of the contents of the book of Revelation. Now, in Revelation 5, we saw Jesus take the book of human destiny from the hand of God. And in Revelation chapter 6, we saw Jesus began to break the seals, and we saw him break six of these seals, which represent various judgments of God upon the world that will serve to usher history toward the second coming of Christ. In chapter 8, Jesus breaks the seventh seal, which contains 
seven trumpets of judgment. A couple Sundays ago, we studied through Revelation chapters 8 and 9 as six angels sound their trumpets. The first angel sounds his trumpet, resulting in a third of the earth burned up. The second sounds his trumpet, resulting in a third of the seas destroyed. A third angel sounds his trumpet, resulting in a third of the fresh water supply on earth rendered bitter and deadly to drink. A fourth angel sounds his trumpet, resulting in the heavenly lights being darkened by a third. A fifth angel sounds his trumpet, resulting in a horde of demonic locust scorpion creatures being released from the abyss and tormenting men for five months. A sixth angel sounds his trumpet, and 200 million demonic soldier creatures come riding from the east, spewing fire and smoke and sulfur from their mouths, and ultimately killing one-third of the world's population. Sadly, we saw at the end of chapter 9 Men still refused, after all of that, to repent of their sins and turn to God. This is where we left off the last time that we were in the book of Revelation. The sixth trumpet is done, and now there is only one trumpet that remains, the seventh one. And we're going to see that the seventh trumpet will be a very big deal because this trumpet will essentially set off the grand finale of events that will finish the mystery of God and bring history to its culmination. What will come on the following pages of Revelation in association with this seventh trumpet is both awful and awesome, sobering and wonderfully glorious. As for the Apostle John... He is about to be given the greatest revelation ever given to a prophet to declare to others. Old Testament prophets saw through a glass darkly and they received bits and pieces of revelation and they passed on to us the revelations that they received. But it was just bits and pieces and they were always left longing to know more glories to come, but John is about to see these glories with his own eyes, and to him will be given the privilege to prophesy and to tell the world what he sees. And such an awesome task requires a very special commissioning ceremony, which we will find recorded in Revelation chapter 10. What we have beginning here in chapter 10 is an interlude of sorts between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, an interlude that gives us the opportunity to watch John be specially commissioned to prophesy regarding the weighty revelation that he is about to witness and then ultimately deliver to others. And God's preparation of John is going to teach us something about what we ourselves ought to be feeling as we read through the book of Revelation, especially as we make our way through the rest of the book. And the way we'll break down our study of this chapter is we'll observe six developments in John's account of his commissioning to prophesy the rest of the book of Revelation. Six developments in John's account of his commissioning to prophesy the rest of the book of Revelation. And the first, let's word this way, slightly different than what's on the PDF that you may be looking at. Number one, John sees a strong angel with an open book in his hand. John sees a strong angel with an open book in his hand. Observe what he says beginning in verse 1. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. 
there are some interpreters who think that this very well may be Christ that John is seeing, given some similarities that we see here with the vision of Christ that John saw in chapter 1. But at least to my way of thinking, there's no way that John would describe Christ as simply another strong angel, like he does here in verse 1. Also, in a few verses, we're going to see this angel swear by the Creator God, and he'll do that swearing by God in the third person, which is something that I don't think Christ would do, given that Jesus himself is the Creator. But that said, this angel is clearly an angel of God who radiates some of the very glories of Jesus Christ and the enthroned God himself. And this seems evident in how captivated the Apostle John is by this angel's appearance. John doesn't normally take the time to describe the appearance of the angels that he sees in the book of Revelation. He more just focuses on what they do and what they say. But this angel is so strikingly different that John finds it worthwhile to give us a detailed description of him. First of all, John describes this angel as another strong angel, which reminds us of the first strong angel that John saw back in Revelation chapter 5, and that was the angel that said, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? John also describes this angel as coming down out of heaven clothed with a cloud, The cloud that he is clothed with reflects something of the glory of this angel, and it may also represent the judgment that this angel is associated with, given the fact that probably half the times we see a cloud mentioned in the New Testament, it is associated with judgment. John also describes this angel as having the rainbow upon his head, And the Greek word translated rainbow here is the word iris. Think of the iris in your eye. So when you see this word, you should think of the iris around the pupil of an eye. An image which leaves us thinking that this is a halo of sorts. A radiating corona of light around the head of this angel. And as for his face, John tells us that his face was like the sun, obviously exuding tremendous light. As for his feet, John tells us that the feet of this angel were like pillars of fire. Imagine having feet like pillars of fire. This is obviously a very impressive and powerful and even intimidating angel. But John notices something else about this angel. Observe what he says in verse 2. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. Some interpreters think that this book is the same book that Christ took from the hand of God in Revelation chapter 5, which perhaps is now fully opened because Christ has broken all seven of the seals And this view is actually quite possible, but if this were the case, John probably would have described it as the book or the little book rather than simply a little book. But either way, what is clear from the verses that follow is that this book contains prophetic revelation from God. This book is open, which means that God wants what is in this book to be known by John and known by us. And as this chapter unfolds, God is going to give this book to John and then commission John to prophesy the contents of the rest of the book of Revelation. So if you want to know what is in this book that the angel is holding, read the rest of the book of Revelation. Because at the very least, this book contains the remaining revelation of God that is still yet to be revealed to John, which we will find in Revelation 11 through 22. 
And if this book happens to be the same one that Christ took from the hand of God in Revelation 5, then this book, we would say, contains all of the prophetic content of the book of Revelation. John continues in verse 2, speaking about this angel and saying, He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. Now remember that this angel's feet are like pillars of fire. And here we're told that these feet are placed on the sea and the land, straddling both to symbolize the sovereignty of the God that this angel represents the sovereignty of God over both land and sea. And with the feet being pillars of fire, perhaps representing God's judgment upon land and sea. Whatever is in this open book, in the hand of this angel, it has to do with the whole earth, including land and sea, and everything that is in them, and God's judgment is going to evidently span both the land and the sea. As for the voice of this angel, in verse 3, John says, and he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. Imagine that. John might have been tempted to run away from this angel if it weren't for the fact that this angel was so breathtakingly beautiful. Clearly, this is a very impressive angel, an intimidating angel in his appearance and in the lion-like roar of his voice and in the epic span of his posture as he straddles both land and sea, holding all the while an open book in his hand. For just a moment, though, we get distracted from this angel and the book in his hand because of what happens when this angel cries out. And this leads us to the second development in John's account of his commissioning to prophesy the contents of the book of Revelation. Number two, let's word it this way, seven peals of thunder speak, but John is told not to write what they say. Seven peals of thunder speak, but John is told not to write what they say. Listen to what John says beginning in verse 3. He says, And when he, the angel, had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. The peals of thunder are likely emanating from the cloud that this angel is clothed with. And John says they uttered their voices, meaning that they said something that was comprehensible to John, something that John himself found very informative, something that John felt was worthy of writing down for us to know. None of us have ever read any words that the thunder has spoken before. So we're anxious to read on and learn what did the peals of thunder say. But alas, John continues in verse 4 saying, When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken And do not write them. So apparently, what these peals of thunder said was for John's benefit only and not for us. And we know this because John is told, he's allowed to hear what they say, but then he's told not to tell us what they said. Evidently, whatever prophesying John will do, In the days to come, he will not be prophesying about what these peals of thunder said. As a prophet of God, John must declare only what God commands him to declare, and he must remain silent where God calls him to remain silent. There is no doubt that what these peals of thunder said are true things, 
but John is told not to speak about them, and we have to be okay with the fact that God doesn't want us to know. Some writers that I read actually speculate about what did the peals of thunder say, which is baffling to me because it misses the entire point of the passage. We're not supposed to know what the peals of thunder said, and a mark of spiritual maturity is for us to know our place and to be willing to live with mystery, right? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but the things he has revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So God reveals enough to us in Revelation, but what the peals of thunder said, that's not for us to know right now. Well, in obedience to God's direction, John turns his attention away from the peals of thunder back to the angel, and he wants our attention to be focused there too. And this leads us to the third development in John's account of his commissioning to prophesy the contents of the book of Revelation. Number three, the angel swears that the seventh trumpet will finish the mystery of God. The angel swears that the seventh trumpet will finish the mystery of God. Observe what John says beginning in verse 5. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there would be delay no longer. Notice that this angel does not swear by heaven or by earth or by the sea or by anything in the heavens and the earth and the sea. He swears by God the one who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and who thus has complete sovereignty over these things. And what this angel swears is that there will be delay no longer. The Greek word that is translated delay is the Greek word chronos, from which we get our word chronology, speaks of time. What the angel is promising is that there will be no more time in the sense that there will be no more time to go by before the consummation of God's purposes. In other words, he's saying that there will be no more delay. And this is why most modern English translations translate the angel as saying there will be delay no longer. This is a sworn promise that this angel is declaring for the benefit of all who hear his words, and especially for the souls under the altar who were asking God back in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These martyred souls were told back in Revelation 6 to to chill, to rest for a while, and wait a little bit longer. But now the angel is saying, when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, there will be no more waiting for all those who have prayed for God to right all wrongs and vindicate his righteousness and for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, they can know that once the seventh angel sounds, there will be a nonstop sequence of rapid-fire events that will bring about the fulfillment of that prayer. The angel elaborates and says in verse 7, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel... When he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he, God, preached to, or literally as he gospeled 
his servants, the prophets. As he evangelized his servants, the prophets. In other words, the angel is saying when the seventh angel blows the seventh trumpet and the events that he heralds are set in motion, then the mystery of God will no longer be mystery. What is right now mystery will become reality. What has been hidden and not fully understood throughout human history will be revealed with absolute vividness and clarity. In that day, you and I will not only know the mystery of how the world will come to its culmination, but we will also know what God's specific purposes in human history have been all along. According to this angel, this mystery and how it comes to its completion is not something that was entirely unknown. He tells John that God literally evangelized his prophets with tantalizing glimpses into this mystery. And we know from Scripture that the hearts of these prophets throughout history would have soared with each new detail given to them. But they were always left frustrated and hungry for more. According to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Peter says, speaking about these prophets, they made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. But in the days set in motion by the seventh angel, there will be no more need for searching and inquiry. No more need for questions. And this is true for us as well. Right now, you and I see through a glass darkly. And we ask questions like, why did God allow evil and suffering into this world? We ask, why did God structure history precisely the way that he did how exactly will it come to its intended end? How will God truly right all wrongs? Such questions will no longer need to be asked during the days when the seventh trumpet, the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, because the mystery of God will become vivid reality. The remaining contents that we find recorded in the rest of the book of Revelation and what he must prophesy is contained in the open book that the angel is holding in his hand. And some very heavy stuff awaits to be revealed, some unimaginably awful judgments followed by unimaginable glory. And John must be prepared to prophesy and to speak forth this revelation that will be given to him. And this leads us to the fourth development in John's account of his commissioning to prophesy the contents of the book of Revelation. Number four, John is told to take the book from the angel and eat it. John is told to take the book from the angel and eat it. Observe what John says in verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. This voice from heaven is not the voice of the angel who's now standing on the land and the sea. This is another voice from heaven that originally had invited John to come up to heaven and see the things which must take place, this in all likelihood is the voice of Christ himself. As for what this voice says, John says that the voice instructed him to go up to this amazingly strong and beautiful and intimidating angel that stands on the land and the sea and to take the book from him. Would you obey such a command? 
Amazingly, John obeys. In verse 9, he says, So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And John had to have been thinking, I sure hope I understood my instructions properly. This angel's voice sounds like the roaring of a lion. His feet are pillars of fire and his face shines like the sun. But John obeys the command that is given to him. He walks up to this angel and tells him to give him the book that is in his hand. For you and I to get God's revelation, all we got to do is open our Bibles. John had to go and take it from the hand of this intimidating and beautiful angel whose voice sounded like the roar of a lion. Happily, the angel is eager to give John the book, but has an unusual instruction to give John. As verse 9 continues, John says, And he said to me, Take it and eat it. Literally, eat it down. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Now, it may seem strange to us to see John being told to eat this book, but it's actually not the first time that we see an instruction like this in the Bible. When God in the Old Testament is commissioning Ezekiel, the prophet, to prophesy, God speaks to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 2, verse 8, and says, Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. Ezekiel then says in verse 9, Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. Verse 10, When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. And then in Ezekiel 3.1, God speaks to Ezekiel again and says, Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So Ezekiel is told to eat the scroll, and then after eating it, he is to speak the contents of what he had eaten. And something similar is happening here in Revelation chapter 10 as the angel offers this book to John and says, take it and eat it. John would know in this moment that he is undergoing a prophetic commissioning similar to what Ezekiel the prophet experienced. Perhaps John initially thought that the angel was just going to hand him the book so that he could read it and then just copy what it said. But the angel wants more from John than this. He wants John to eat this book so that it would go down into him and be assimilated into his being. He wants John to experience the flavor of this book in his mouth and in his stomach Evidently, God wants the rest of Revelation to be written and declared by a man who has personally tasted and felt in his being what he is writing. As for the taste of this book, the angel warns John, saying, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. This book contains God's revelation of things to come. And evidently, it will have a certain sweetness to it. In John's mouth, it will be sweet as honey. But this revelation of things to come will also make John's stomach bitter, leaving John sick to his stomach. That's quite a promise that this angel is giving to John and quite a warning as well coupled with a command from this angel to eat this book. Well, John is a seasoned saint at this point. He's learned to obey God and to do whatever he is told, no matter how unusual the command might be. 
and no matter the bitterness of stomach that this angel has promised him, the angel has told him to eat this book. And John will obey. And this leads us to the fifth development in John's account of his commissioning to prophesy the contents of the book of Revelation. Number five, John eats the book and finds it both sweet and bitter. John eats the book and finds it both sweet and bitter. Observe what John says here in verse 10. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. This is exactly what the angel told him would happen. In Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, you can write this reference down. Jeremiah 15, 16, Jeremiah the prophet speaks of God's words and says to God, your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. So they were sweet to his taste, a delight to his heart. Nonetheless, as you read on in Jeremiah, you find out why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. These sweet words from God ended up breaking his heart. After God told Ezekiel to eat the scroll that he was offering to him, Ezekiel says in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 2 and following, So I opened my mouth and he fed me this scroll. He said to me, Son of man, Feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But then you keep reading and a few verses later, Ezekiel says in verse 14, And I went embittered in the rage of my spirit and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. So John's experience here is similar to what Jeremiah and Ezekiel experienced. He eats the book and finds it to be sweet as honey in his mouth. But after he had eaten it down, he says that his stomach was made bitter. Suddenly, John is not feeling so well. And it's literally the word of God that is making him sick. He knew this would happen because he told that this would happen. But he obeyed God anyway, and he ate the book. John now has the lingering sweetness of God's revelation on his tongue, while at the same time he is sick to his stomach. And it's in this state that God wants him to prophesy. If God spoke to you, and warns you in advance that his word would make your stomach sick with bitterness. If he said to you, I want you to eat this book, and I warn you in advance that it will make your stomach bitter, would you eat it? I hope you would. Sometimes God's word is supposed to make us uncomfortable. Right? So do you still want his word even when it makes you uncomfortable? We all envy, for example, the revelations that were given to Daniel. Yet after receiving revelations from God, Daniel says in Daniel chapter 8, verse 27, listen to this, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick, for days. Would you have wanted those revelations from God if you knew that they would make you so sick? Well, John was willing to devour a book that he knew would make his stomach bitter, yet in devouring it, he got to experience the sweetness of it too. These are the two contradictory sensations that John is right now experiencing 
And this contradiction represents, honestly, what all of us should be feeling as we read through the book of Revelation, especially what follows, but it would also include what has preceded where we're at today. Yes, there is a certain delicious sweetness in seeing God on the move, as he is in the book of Revelation, and seeing God vindicating his name and judging the unrepentant wicked and saving people and moving history towards its climax when Christ returns at his second coming. Yet at the same time, there is a bitterness in seeing so much death and destruction that will come to the wicked. There's a certain bitterness in reading of the martyrdom of God's saints, a certain bitterness in reading about the trampling underfoot of the city of Jerusalem that will be spoken about in the next chapter. Also, there's no better news than the news of Christ coming to earth to establish his kingdom and to eternally bless and reward the righteous Yet there is a certain bitterness, even in that, when we think about loved ones who might be excluded from those blessings and from those glories. And I love the fact that we have this interlude here that lets us witness the commissioning of John, lets us catch our breath a little bit as these events are unfolding, and to give us perspective on what we ought to be feeling I mean, guys, if you read the book of Revelation and you feel only a fierce glee as you see God judging the wicked and establishing his kingdom, then something's missing in your thinking. At the same time, if you read the book of Revelation and you feel only sadness, then something is missing in your thinking as well. But if you read through the book of Revelation and find its contents to be both deliciously sweet and painfully bitter, if you read this book and find yourself rejoicing and weeping, sometimes at the very same moment, then you are right where the Apostle John is and I think right where God wants you to be. Coming back to John's commissioning, after John eats the book and absorbs it into his person and personally experiences the bitter sweetness of it all, God has a final message of assurance and commissioning for John. And this leads us to the final development in John's account of his commissioning to prophesy the contents of the book of Revelation. Number six, John is commissioned to prophesy. John is commissioned to prophesy. In verse 11, John says, and they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Who is the they who is speaking to John here? At the very least, this is the angel who gave him the book along with the voice that spoke to John from heaven, and it may also include the seven peals of thunder that are speaking to him. Either way, these voices speak to John and give him both a promise and a calling. Literally, the voices say to him, it is necessary that you prophesy again. This is ultimately God telling John what he must do what is necessary for him to do. God really wants his people to know what John is about to see and then later reveal to us. So he tells John that he must prophesy the contents of what is to follow. In other words, he must speak God's remaining revelation regarding things to come so that you and I and all saints of every age would have the benefit of this revelation. That said, this is not simply a statement of what John must do. This is also an assurance to John that he will indeed prophesy again. 
His stomach may be sick with bitterness right now, leaving him feeling ill. But God will see to it that John is able to prophesy the contents of the book of Revelation. John may also be an old man by now, and we know that he was. But he will live long enough to prophesy the contents of the book of Revelation all the way to the very end. But notice, guys, that God does not speak these words of commissioning. He does not commission John to prophesy the rest of this book until John himself has personally ingested its contents, tasted its sweetness, and felt the bitterness of it in his gut. It is only after John does these things that God commissions him to prophesy the contents of the book of Revelation. It's clear that God does not want the rest of Revelation communicated through an unfeeling vessel. He wants his revelation communicated by a man who personally feels the sweetness of it in his mouth and the bitterness of it in his stomach. As for what John is to prophesy, he's told here in verse 11 that he must prophesy concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings, denoting the epic sweep of his prophecies. What John is going to be prophesying about on the coming pages will have abundant bearing upon many peoples, nations, languages, and many kings all over the globe. His prophecies will be global and cosmic in their scope, spanning the land and the seas and will affect everyone. And in some ways, as we read on in the book of Revelation, we'll see that John is prophesying against certain peoples and kings and nations. And he will prophesy of their downfall, but he will also be prophesying regarding the actions of a Savior who has purchased with his blood people of every tribe and tongue and nation. He will speak about the Savior's coming to earth and establishing his kingdom, and he will deliver a call to everyone everywhere of every nation to come to this Savior and to drink and satisfy their thirst in him. And he will deliver these prophecies as a man who has eaten the very prophecies that he will speak, as a man who has tasted the sweetness of these prophecies on his tongue and who carries the bitterness of these prophecies in his stomach. Just as we wrap things up this morning, you know, it may seem weird to you that John, again, would be told to eat this book containing God's revelation. But it shouldn't feel weird. I mean, we've seen that it's what Jeremiah and Ezekiel experienced and did. But it's also not too much different from what you and I are actually called to do, right? In 1 Peter 2.2, we're told to long for the pure milk of the word that we may grow thereby. We're actually told to drink this book. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul speaks of the word as solid food or as milk that we eat and drink. In Psalm 119, 103, the psalmist speaks of partaking of God's words, ingesting them into his being. And he says, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, we are called to let the word of Christ dwell richly where? Within us before we go teaching and admonishing others with that word. So God's word goes into us, and then we teach and admonish others. 
As for what we do with the Word of God, Christ has given to all of us a commission. We call it the Great Commission, calling us to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature and to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all things that Christ has commanded of us. All of us should take this commission seriously, ingesting all that Christ has commanded of us, devouring his word, and then out of the overflow of our experience of his revelation, we speak this message to others. So it turns out that our commissioning that we've been given is not too terribly different than what John is experiencing here in Revelation 10. But one of the lessons of Revelation 10 is that there are parts of God's Word that are sweet to our taste, and there are parts of God's Word that leave us with bitterness in the pit of our stomachs. And there are some parts of God's Word that leave us with both bitterness and sweetness at the same time. So what do we do with the parts of God's Word that make our stomach bitter? Well, we eat them just the same. And we discover in the process that there is a certain sweetness to be enjoyed even in the bitter parts, the parts that make our stomach bitter. Sometimes we like to pick and choose the parts of God's Word that we want to eat but we need to be committed to eating all of God's word, even the hard parts. There are some preachers nowadays who simply like to preach the positive parts of Scripture. And they will even admit, they will tell someone interviewing them that they avoid the topics of sin and damnation and hell because they just want to keep things positive. Such preachers will claim that they do this because they simply want to encourage people. But in reality, such preachers are selfishly trying to protect their own stomachs, trying to keep themselves from feeling the bitterness of the word in their own stomachs. They like the sweet parts of God's Word. They hate the bitter parts of God's Word. But what they don't realize is that by rejecting the bitter parts, they hinder their own ability and the ability of their congregations to really appreciate the sweetness of God's Word. As Thomas Watson, the Puritan, has said, until sin be bitter... Christ will not be sweet. And that's so true. And I think we can also say that until we are willing to taste the bitterness of God's word, we will never truly get down to the real sweetness of it. May God help us as a congregation to faithfully love all of his word and to ingest all of his word, the pleasant parts and the hard parts, the sweet parts and the bitter parts. And may God give us the grace to embrace those parts of Scripture that leave us with both sweetness and bitterness at the same time. May God help us as a church not to get caught up in things like what the peals of thunder might have to say or every little thing that the people on Twitter might want us to talk about. May we speak only those things that God has clearly called us to speak. May it be as if we know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And finally, if you're here this morning and you are presently outside of Jesus Christ, I have a bittersweet message for you. The sweet part is that God created you. He created you to love him and to serve him and to walk in 
relationship with him in all of your ways. He's a good God and a glorious God who is worthy of your life and your love and your full surrender. He has given you his law to guide you in your life so that it might be well with you and with your children forever. The bitter part of my message is that According to the Bible, you have gone your own way and you have rebelled against this good and gracious God and you have thereby placed yourself under his condemnation. But the sweet news is that God has sent his son into the world to live the life that you have failed to live and to die the death that you deserve to die. And God raised him from the dead and ascended him to his own right hand, where Christ now reigns from on high and stands ready to save all those who come to him with their brokenness of sin, repenting of their sins, confessing their sins to him, and looking to him and believing in him and calling upon his name to be their Lord and Savior. The bitter news is that even though Christ has done all of this, if you continue to reject him, you will die in your sins and you will suffer under God's wrath for all of eternity. But the sweet news is that if you believe in him, if you call upon his name, God will be delighted to forgive you of your sins and make you right with him and to give you a home with him in heaven forever. And my prayer is that God will give you the grace to embrace the bitter sweetness of that message so that you will believe in Christ and call upon his name if you have never done so before. If you do that, I know that you will taste the kindness of the Lord And you will taste and see that the Lord is good. And then you'll be able to join us in walking in the good of this bittersweet message and in delivering this bittersweet message to the world. A message that will set some people's teeth on edge and cause them to grind their teeth in rage against us. A message that will pierce some hearts, and bring them to tears of repentance. And a message that will bring salvation to those who believe. A salvation that will prove to them to be far sweeter for all of eternity than they could have ever imagined. Let's pray together. Lord, we here at Cornerstone want to be a people of the book. We don't want to just be a people of portions of this book. We want the whole counsel of God. Sometimes your word, Lord, it just goes down into us like milk and honey, just so sweet to our taste. And sometimes... We drink it in, and it's like a chemotherapy cocktail that is designed to kill the cancers of sin within us. And it's not pleasant to drink, but it is good. Your word is what we need. And if we are willing to take in the whole counsel of God, then we will have ample sweetness in our mouths. We will feel the bitterness sometimes in our stomachs. I think of even the Apostle Paul who's just cherishing gospel truths in Romans 5 through 8 and his heart is soaring with gospel realities, and then on the height of his meditation, 
of these gospel truths, he begins to speak in Romans 9 and says, I have unceasing grief in my heart for those that are presently outside of the enjoyment of these things. Whatever you want us to feel and experience as we live by your book and take it in each day, Lord, we want the full experience so that we might then not only walk in the good of it ourselves, but then speak these words to others as people who have ingested this into our being. I pray if there are any here this morning, Lord, that have never believed in you, that you would touch their hearts and give them the gift of faith to believe. May they realize all that is at stake with regard to their souls. And may today be a day of salvation for them. We ask these things, Lord, as a congregation together in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.